our way to Junior Church, and we're going to turn to Romans chapter 1 this morning. Romans chapter 1. Okay, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called us an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. On May 24th, 1738, a discouraged missionary went very unwillingly to a religious meeting in London. There a miracle took place in his heart. About a quarter to nine, he wrote in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sin, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That missionary was John Wesley. The message he heard that evening was the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. Just a few months before, Wesley had written in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who, oh, who shall convert me? That evening in Aldergate Street, his prayers were answered. And it was the beginning of a revival that swept across the, the nation of England. As we approach the book of Romans, we need to realize it is a powerful book. It is a book that has so much to say to us and to our lives. In Habakkuk chapter 2, Habakkuk cried out, The just shall live by faith. And that is the theme of this particular book. If you come down to verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Quotes that verse for us here. In, in the book of Romans, we're going to learn what does it mean to be the just? What, what, what is he referring to when he uses that term? This phrase actually is quoted three times in the New Testament. Here in Romans, we have, he amplifies what it means to be just. In Galatians chapter 3, he quotes it again in, in chapter, verse 11 there. And in Galatians, he, he's teaching us what does it mean to live? The just shall live. And then the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, quotes it again. And it's in Hebrews that we have revealed to us what does it mean by faith. And so it takes the three books really to capture the, the truth of that little phrase, the, the just shall live by faith. We're going to just look at the opening part of the introduction this morning. And I have to start with a confession and an apology here. My wife asked me yesterday, did you include the outline of the book in your notes? Now, I did my notes about 15 weeks ago, so uh, I immediately thought in mind, I wouldn't have skipped that. 
And so I said, yes. So I don't know. Do you have it up there? Do you have it for us? Oh, okay. It's not in your notes. <laughs> I didn't realize that till this morning. And, and I didn't even give you a room to put it in your notes. So you, you want to flip your page over and put it on the back. Uh, you, you'll have the outline for the book of, of Hebrews there. And Romans. I'm sorry, Romans. <laughs> I ha also have to confess, this is not an original outline. When, when I was going in to Eternal College, one of the courses that I took there under Dr. Raymond Gingrich was the Book of Romans. This was his outline. He had written his doctrinal dissertation, actually, on the Book of Romans. And this was the outline he used for that. I'm not stealing his outline. He gave us permission at the end of the course to use it if, if we felt so led. And so I'm, I'm drawing on his outline here this morning. In, in verses 1 through 17, we have the introduction to the book. He sets the stage, and we're going to look at several things this week and next week from the introduction. And we're going to go through them quite rapidly, but that's okay, because they're all amplified through the book. And, and so we will come back to, to what we look at over and over again. But beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3, we have the wrath of God revealed. He, he starts out very clearly in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and so forth. So we're going to take some time to develop why is it that God, God's wrath was given to us in Scripture. What, what is he saying in that? How does that apply to us today? But he doesn't stop with the wrath of God in, in 321 through 839, we have the work of God revealed. So we go from the wrath to the work of God. Now that is a long section there, but it covers several truths. We're going to look at justification. What does it mean to be just before God? What, what does it mean to, to be right with God? How, how does a person become right with God? Then we're going to look at, in that section, sanctification. We're, we're to be growing in our faith. And then we'll finish that off by looking at his work of glorification. I, I like the way one old man put it years ago. As he described his salvation, he says, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's justification. I, I will be saved, or I am being saved from the, the uh, presence of sin in my life or the power of sin in my life, excuse me, that's sanctification. And then I will be saved someday from the presence of sin. That's glorification. So you have all three of them taught in the book of Romans under the work of God there. And that will take us some time to get through that. Then in nine through 11, chapter 9 through 11, he gives us the, a glimpse of the wisdom of God, dealing with Israel, dealing with the church. How does it all fit together? What is God's plan and purpose there? We'll, we'll explore those areas together. And then you come to the practical section in chapter 12 through 16, the will of God. He begins that by saying, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And, and what, what is his will? How, does, how do we take all of these truths that we have in chapters 1 through 11 and work them out in our day-by-day -day life? So that's the direction we're going with this particular book. Today, we're going to quickly go through the opening verses here, where we see, first of all, the proclaimer of the gospel. The one who has given us this particular book is the Apostle Paul. He communicates to us a message from God himself. So it's not Paul's message, it's God's message. Paul is simply 
the, the messenger here. He's, he's the one who is proclaiming it to us. And notice he describes himself two ways in verse 1. He comes, first of all, as a bondservant. A bondservant in Scripture is an individual that is a slave by choice. They may have been sold into slavery because of economic reasons and so forth, but over the course of time, if you recall in the Old Testament, if, if a man had to go into a, that kind of a situation, every seven years they could be released from that and set free. But if the seven years came to an end and this individual thought, you know, I have it better here than I had it out there on my own. I'd like to stay here and serve this master. They could become what was known as a bondservant. They would go to the temple. They would have their ears pierced. And uh, I recommend that you have your ears pierced today. But that, 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 they did that back then. <laughs> but from that point on, they were marked as a slave for the rest of their lives by choice. This is the, the direction they wanted to go. The Romans would understand what Paul was talking about here. There were, it was estimated to be over 6 million slaves in the city of Rome alone. So in a sense, he's starting off by saying, I belong to Jesus Christ. I am, I am his. And that's not a demeaning position as far as Paul was concerned. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, he reminds us that Christ left the glories of heaven came into this world, took upon himself the form of a man, and became a what? A servant, and died for us on the cross. So he is, in a sense, following the example of Jesus Christ. We rebel against that idea. We like our freedom, don't we? We, we want, like to be in control. We like to do things our way. And yet the truth of the matter is, Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and guess what? Those who dwell in it. We belong, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we belong to God. We are his by creation. And if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we are his because we've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we, whether we live it out or not, we are to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to reveal to us here how God has a claim on each and every one of our lives. He has a purpose for us to fulfill in, in this world. We need to learn to cooperate with his plan. And, and I guess as we think about that, the question we have to wrestle with is, are we living for ourselves or are we living for Jesus Christ? Are, are, are we living to, to please ourselves and for our own comfort and our desires or as a bondservant, are we looking out for the desires of our master? What would he have us to do? How would he have us to live? What, what areas would he have us serve in? Are we willing to be a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ? He also comes in verse 1 as an apostle. Apostle was someone who was commissioned by a master there. It is a technical term that was used in that day to deal with the, those who were sent forth by Caesar they were given a message by Caesar. They had the responsibility of going through the empire and communicating that message everywhere that they were sent. That, that was an apostle. They, they were sent out not to bring their own message. They were sent out not to change the message in any way, but simply to deliver the message of the master. And he comes as an apostle. In this case, he's not representing Caesar. 
He's representing Jesus Christ. Much better place to be than, than representing Caesar. It, uh, we have the similar idea. It comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Lest we feel left out from the Apostle Paul there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 20 it says, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, as though God or entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And just a few verses before that, he speaks of the fact that God committed to us the work of reconciliation. We are the ones that are entrusted today with the gospel message. We are the ones that have the responsibility of carrying that message in the world in which we live. We don't make up that message. We dare not change that message we simply present the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost and to share that message with those that desperately need to see it. We have a responsibility, not technically as an apostle, but as an ambassador to carry that message, even when it doesn't seem convenient to us. We have that responsibility. I, I like the attitude of the apostle Paul in Philippians. He's in prison. He's about to possibly give his life for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And as he, he looks at his, his life and, and situation in verse one of chapter, verse 12 of chapter one, he says, the things that happened to me have happened for what? The furtherance of the gospel. And he goes on to say, God put me in this prison so that I have an opportunity to preach the gospel to people that I would not see otherwise. Uh, he, he had the opportunity to be a faithful witness no matter where he was placed. And I wonder, do we ever stop to consider that? God puts us in a place for a purpose. Have you ever found yourself in the hospital room and you're upset with the Lord for putting you in that hospital room and you, you don't want to be there? You don't want any parts of it? And yet I wonder, are you there? Because God said, there's somebody there that needs the gospel message. Is he able to do that? I, I think he is. You have a job. Uh, are you on that job simply to make a living? Or is there somebody on that job that needs to see Jesus Christ and needs a word of, of testimony? It needs somebody to share the gospel with, with them. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Do we take that call seriously when we look at our life and our circumstances? And then the second thing we want to look at this morning here is the provider of the gospel. Paul communicated the gospel. Paul did not come up with the gospel message. It wasn't his. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ there. Verse 2 ties the gospel message back into the Old Testament there. This is not a new teaching that Paul's coming up with. It's a new understanding. As you look at the Old Testament, it all pointed ahead to the work of Jesus Christ on the, on the cross of Calvary. How many of you enjoy reading the book of Leviticus? <laughs> you, you, you get bogged down with those offerings, and you wonder how in the world did the priests ever remember how to do that, and, and which order, and, and so forth. I, I, I don't know about you, but when I read the book of Leviticus, I come away saying, thank you, Lord. I wasn't living back then. <laughs> didn't, didn't have that responsibility to, to, to handle there. But every one of those sacrifices looked ahead to the work of Jesus Christ in our behalf. 
They, they were all pointing to the, the cross and, and what God was going to do for us there. And so with that in mind, thinking of the coming of our salvation, Paul reminds us, first of all, that Christ was a descendant of David in verse 3. And notice he says he was a descendant how? According to the flesh. That's a very important truth for us, and we're going to delve into that when we get to chapter 5. In chapter 5, he said, in Adam, all sinned. And sin came into our lives as a result of Adam. In Christ, where we can be made alive, and uh, because he came in human form. Remember the law says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And somebody had to pay the price for that sin. Jesus Christ came as a man to pay for our sin. Incidentally, this is off the subject, but uh, I've been questioned about this twice within the last week or two, so I'm going to just throw it out, and I won't charge you extra for it. (laughs) Those that are digging into theistic evolution, thinking that God didn't create Adam and Eve, that uh, just happened uh, over the course of thousands of years there, if Adam and Eve were not real characters, then it destroys the work of Christ in Romans chapter 5. You need to really wrestle with that. If you're going to go to the way of theistic evolution, then Christ didn't die for your sin. He just died for his own. And we can discuss that more when we get to chapter 5 there. But he came as a man. John chapter 1 verse 14 says... The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Only a man is qualified to purchase our salvation. That idea began back in the book of Genesis. Remember in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve chose to sin? God revealed in Genesis 3.15 that it was going to be the seed of the woman that would come and that would crush Satan's head under his feet there. It had to be a man that defeated the enemy. In Psalm 40 verse 6 to eight there, he says, Sacrifice and meal offerings thou hast not desired. Mine ears thou hast opened or pierced there. That's the bondservant there. Burn offerings and sin offerings thou hast not required. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book is written. I delight to do thy will. Thy law is within my heart. It required a man. In Hebrews, he adds to that the fact that, that he... He required a a body there or a man to die for our sin. And as a descendant of David, he qualified to go to the cross to die for us. He also qualified as the right to rule there, but that's a different subject there. But he came as a man. But he also describes him here as the Son of God in verse 4. He was not just a man come in human form. He was the Son of God as well. This was demonstrated how? By the fact that he was resurrected from the dead. He, he demonstrated once for all through the spirit of holiness there that he was the son of God. And what is the significance of the resurrection? The significance there is that he is testifying that the price was paid. On the cross he cried out, it is finished, it is paid. When he was coming back from the grave in Romans chapter 4... It was for our justification. He applied that price to our account so that we could experience salvation, so that we could have eternal life. And praise the Lord, we can say today, it's finished. He did it all 
for us. And if you ever struggle with doubts as far as your salvation is concerned, go back to the cross. Take a look at what he did and what he said there on the cross for you. He, he did that all as the Son of God for us. That leads to the power of the gospel in verses 5 through 7. Now notice as you move into this section, he switches the pronouns now. He's dealing with I in the opening verses. I'm an apostle. I'm, I'm the bondservant. Now he changes it to we. Who's he referring to there in the we? I think he's referring to you and I. To each of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Now the sobering thought as you think about that is he goes so far as to say we are saints. <laughs> Do you think of that person sitting next to you as a saint? <laughs> I hope you do. <laughs> some, some of you do. Uh, we, we, we struggle with that a little bit. But uh, think of what he's saying in that little phrase. It is the power of the gospel that has transformed us from sinners to saints. Now, I realize that's a work in progress in some of our lives. I, I don't know how many of you think you've arrived yet, but... Uh, uh, I don't want to burst your bubble, but we're going to see the work of sanctification is, is still in effect here. But he's taking us from sinners to saints. How is that possible? Three things he says quickly here. First of all, he said, we have received the grace of God. That's why Jesus came into the world. John 1, 17, the law was given by Moses, but what? Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, he says, for by grace are you saved through faith. I picked up a little booklet this morning. I, actually, I got it yesterday in the mail, but I didn't get around to reading my mail yesterday. So I haven't read the rest of the book, but I read the opening illustration here. It's put out by uh, our Daily Bread Ministries. We have some copies back there. This, this is a special Easter one. It, it's not what, what you get on the table back there. But in it, he starts with a story. The story is told of a judge, and you'll have to bear with me as I read this. I, I, I like to blow up these illustrations and uh, get them into a larger format, but I didn't have time to do that this morning. So I'm, I'm struggling to read it and, and still keep my train of thought here. But the story is told of a judge presiding at court in the poorest section of the city. It was a bitterly cold night during the hardest years of the Great Depression. A haggard, shabbily dressed old woman was brought before him. Charged with having stolen a loaf of bread, she made no attempt to deny the charges. Her daughter's husband had abandoned the family, she said. Her daughter was sick. Her two grandchildren were starving. However, the victimized shopkeeper refused to drop the charges. He felt he needed to set an example for a bad neighborhood. The judge let out a deep sigh. Looking at the woman, he told her that the law left him no alternative. She was guilty. The penalty was $10, an obviously impossible amount for the woman, or 10 days in jail. But as he pronounced the sentence, he pulled out a $10 bill, gave it to the bailiff, and paid the fine. Then with a bang of his gavel, he declared that he was fining everyone in the courtroom 50 cents for living in a city where a poor woman had to steal bread to feed her starving family. <laughs> Within minutes... The overwhelmed woman left the courtroom carrying $47.50. Now, that doesn't seem a whole lot to us today, but that was a lot back in, in the days of the Depression there. It was collected from petty criminals, traffic violators, on-duty police officers, and even the irate grocer. 
the, the old woman must have gone home exhausted from the roller coaster of emotions she had experienced, yet delighted at her totally unexpected good fortune. She had escaped a penalty she legally deserved, had received an unexpected, undeserved blessing. People who owed her nothing had provided a gift that would immediately make her destitute family's life much better. That, he goes on to say, is a picture of grace. He defines grace as the generous character of God who displays unmerited, undeserved, and abundant favor to undeserving sinners. We have received grace. We need to be thankful for that. But with that grace comes not just salvation. In in Titus chapter 2, he says the grace of God has appeared bringing us what? Salvation. Also with it comes the responsibility then to live that grace out in our lives. He goes on to say in in verse 12 there, it teaches us how we are to live in righteousness and godliness there. And then it goes on to give us hope for a glorious future there, looking for the blessed, glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grace touches every area of our life, our past, our present, and our future there. We not only receive grace, but we are called of, or depending on your translation now, we are called by Christ Jesus. We're going to see more of that when we get into chapter 8, the, the closing part of uh, or verse 29 and 30 there, where, where he speaks of the fact that we've been justified and so forth. He also says we've been called and we've been glorified there. We'll explore what, what does that really mean when we get there, but... As, as I think of that calling today, I think of Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to do what? Seek and to save that which was lost. As he was getting ready to go back to heaven, he gave that same commission to the Apostle Peter and to his disciples. You shall be my witnesses. You have the responsibility today because you have been called of Christ Jesus. You're called for what? to carry that gospel message to the lost, to reach out to those that desperately need to see the, the love of a Savior today. We've been called into a relationship as part of a family. We are to live that out as commissioned ones, called of God to carry the message to the lost. And then he closes it off. If that's not enough, he closes it off by saying, we are beloved of God. You ever wonder... How do you know God loves you? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, he said, Here in his love, not that we loved God, but what? He loved us and gave himself as a propitiation for our sin. He first loved us. We are loved. If you ever doubt the love of God, take a long, hard look at the cross of Calvary. There is the greatest display of love that we could ever see. God so loved that he gave his only begotten son for you and for me. That, that is a truth that I don't think we can ever quite wrap our mind around this side of eternity. God loved us so much that Jesus Christ was willing to leave glory, come into this old sin-darkened world with all of its trials and troubles and problems, and go to the cross so we someday could go to heaven. And live with him. That is love to the extreme there. So much so that as Paul thinks of that in Romans chapter 8, as he concludes the work of God there in verses 38 and 39, he raises that question, what can separate us from the love of God? 
And he goes on to conclude there is nothing in this world, nothing in the world to come. It doesn't matter whether it's life or death or angels or principalities or power. He goes on and on with a long list. He said, nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. Why? Because of the power that was released through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a power that is changing us from sinners to saints, not by works, not by the degree of men. We're not saints by gifts. It is the power of the gospel. It is the power of his grace being worked out in our lives that, are, that is changing us from a sinner to a saint today. As you think of that, are you allowing the truth of the gospel to transform your life? Are you allowing the truth of the gospel to transform your mind and the things that you think about and, and how you think and so forth? Are, are you living out your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Remember he said, why do you bother calling me Lord if you're not going to do the things that I say? Do, do, do we really have a desire to be a bondservant, an apostle, and in a sense an ambassador of Jesus Christ? Are we seeking to carry the gospel to those that desperately need to see Are you allowing God to change your life from a sinner to a saint today? That's what we're going to explore as we go through this book of Romans. And if uh, you looked at your neighbor when I asked that question a little bit ago and you thought, well, they're not quite the saint that they, they should be, uh, <laughs> just remember, neither are you, but God is at work in your heart. And he's changing you into the image of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. As the Apostle Paul said, we don't need to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. We want to just stop and say thank you, Lord, that you have brought us to that place of belief and faith. Give us the desire now to live that out in such a way that somebody that we come across this week would get a glimpse of Jesus Christ and maybe even hear the gospel message from our lips, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing, He Lives. <laughs>